This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Galatians chapter 4. One of the many things that I love about the Christmas season is how it rings with songs of the Savior's birth. Advertisements choose carols for background music. Department stores broadcast of the baby born in Bethlehem over loudspeakers. Concerts are conducted that center around this good news of great joy. The gospel echoes all around. Standing among the most familiar songs of the season, and probably my favorite hymn of all time, is Charles Wesley's beloved Hark the Herald Angels Sing. It was a joy to sing it with you just a moment ago. The carol was first published as part of a collection entitled Hymns and Sacred Poems in 1739. And while the entire hymn fills our thoughts with truths about Christ, the traditional second verse sings with the mystery of the incarnation. How the eternal God took on flesh and was born as a helpless baby to bring salvation to his people. Wesley writes for us to sing these truths on our lips and to hold them in our hearts. Christ by highest heaven adored. Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come. Offspring of a virgin's womb. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. This single verse contains the melody line of the entire Christmas story, doesn't it? We learn of the child whose birth was attended by the praise of angels, proclaiming glory to God in the highest. The phrase incarnate deity contains two truths for the price of one. The word incarnate means embodied in flesh. Deity simply means God, and so the poetic phrase is teaching us that this baby being sung of was not merely a baby, but was somehow the everlasting God veiled in flesh, the God in human form. And of course, this is the very truth that Scripture teaches. The invisible God becomes visible. The Creator becomes creature. The deity takes on humanity. And finally, we hear the good news that God is pleased. Isn't that good news? Not irritated as man with man to dwell, but pleased. We discovered in our study of Exodus earlier this year how God's heart has always been to dwell in the midst of his people. And and here this verse ends by calling on Jesus Our Emmanuel, the name Emmanuel meaning God with us. And so when we sing that carol, we're confessing 
that God has come to dwell in a spectacular way and for a saving purpose. Athanasius said it like this, he became what we are that he might make us what he is. While our annual calendar comes to a conclusion in December, the traditional church calendar begins here with the season of Advent. This ancient church practice is where we consider how God's people of old waited for and anticipated the coming of the Messiah. We remember that we too are a waiting people, anticipating the promised return of the Messiah. Over the next four Sundays, we will explore four verses in Galatians chapter 4, all with one aim, to know and worship Christ more fully. We'll look at the incarnation through the lens of fulfillment this morning. Lord willing, next week we will remember the redemption that was won for us. The third week we'll marvel at the gospel gifts that are ours in Christ. On Christmas Eve we'll pull it all together as we sing of the one who was born late in time, behold him come. As we come to another Christmas season, I'd like to ask, does the incarnation still cause amazement in your heart? Does the incarnation still cause amazement in your heart? While the truths of Galatians 4, 4-7 may take less than a minute to read, they offer a lifetime of fruitful study. The Apostle Paul shows how the coming of Christ was neither early nor late, but came to pass according to God's eternal plan and purpose. The opening verse reveals what uniquely qualified Jesus to bring salvation to his people once and for all. Our Advent exploration of this text begins where the apostle himself does with incarnation. And I'd like to organize our thoughts under two headings regarding the incarnation as first, the patient plan of God, and second, the perfect plan of God. Would you stand with me as we read now Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 to 7. This is God's perfect, holy, and inerrant word. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first aspect I'd like to draw to your attention is the patient plan of God. The center of Scripture's entire story is the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It is this good news that the whole Bible is telling of, so it would be difficult to overestimate the importance 
of the very moment when God himself broke into the timeline of history in the incarnation. The birth of Christ grew to be so significant in the world, eventually all of time was divided by his birth, B.C. and A.D. Through the reading of the letters of Paul, we learn that his theology, and in fact his entire life, centers around God's redeeming work in sending His Son in the fullness of time. Paul uses that language not only here, but also in his letter to the church in Ephesus. There he explains more about this holy moment in time and what Christ accomplished through His birth, life, death, and resurrection. You might want to turn there. We'll actually be in a couple of passages here in Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 7, Paul writes, In Him, this is in Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Here we learn that a plan had been made, drawn up for the fullness of time, a plan that God had decided upon through which he would bring redemption, forgiveness, restoration. But it makes us wonder, doesn't it, when was this plan designed? And why did it take so long to carry out? I'm really thankful that you asked both of those questions. The first part of the answer is that this was a plan made in eternity plan made in eternity. With the phrase, the fullness of time, Paul is pointing to the promised moment that God had planned before time began, a plan to bring salvation to his people. Just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5, Paul explains this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him, that's in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. We see here that God's plan of redemption, including who would come to know his redemption was drawn up even before the foundations of the world were laid. Before the first minute passed on the great timeline of redemptive history. And believer, how comforting this is to know that this is how long God has loved you. How long ago he chose to show his grace to you. Even before you'd taken your first step. Before you had drawn your first breath. 
If you're in Christ, then is when God first loved you, set his love upon you, chose you, so that in time you would come to know the forgiveness and salvation that comes through Christ. This was a plan made in eternity. Yet we see also that this was a plan unfolding in time. A plan unfolding in time. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, we hear the whisper of a promised day when the seed of the woman would crush the head of the seed of the serpent. And God would prove his victory over death and sin. Yet, that day did not come to pass in the time of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob. The day of this promise did not arrive in the time of the kings or the judges or the prophets. Rather, at the appointed time. Not a moment too soon and not a moment too late. God sent forth his son to save his people from their sins. We're not told why God chose the time he did, but what I'd like to point out are three kind providences that happened around the time of Christ. Three kind providences. And since this is uh, the later of the two services, I'm going to give you these kind providences in Latin. (laughs) The first is Pax Romana. Pax Romana. Jesus was born in the golden age of Roman power, which came with it a transportation system, a series of roads that stretched across the known world that would enable the good news of the gospel to travel to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. It also came with it a a sense of peace where Early faith was at least tolerated. So Pax Romana. The second is lingua franca, the common language. At the time of the birth of Christ, you have really Greek and Latin, Greek spoken and Latin written and also spoken, that enabled the good news of the gospel to be told around the world, to be shared among multiple people groups, cultures, and places through the common language of the day. The third Latin word is Adventus, Adventus, which is where we get our word Advent. Why this is important is for you to know, one, where we get the word Advent from, but what I'd like to really pull into view here is the Advent that the people of God themselves were longing for. The law of Moses had done its work in revealing sin, in showing God's people their need for a Redeemer. It held them under its instruction and careful watch. And it led them to long for one who could fulfill the law's just demands and also bring into existence the kingdom they had long waited for. As the Gospel of Mark is just setting sail in chapter 1, verse 15 Mark records the first public words of Jesus from his perspective, which were, in fact, the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. So three kind providences, uh, 
the work of Rome and establishing a transportation system that the gospel could get out, a common language where it would be understood, and the longing of God's people for a redeemer, for a Messiah. And in a real sense, the birth of Christ was the signal that the end of history had begun. It was the beginning of the end times. The incarnation was the eventide of one age and the dawning of the age to come, the day of grace. One way to think about applying this phrase in the fullness of time is simply to remember this. Our God has perfect timing. Our God has perfect timing. His plans are never hurried. He's never delayed. His plans are never frustrated. But in the plan of God, everything is running according to plan. Here we are at the close of a calendar year. Likely there were seasons of this past year that were challenging for you. Likely you have needed to depend on the Lord as you've waited and trusted in him. What situations have you walked through where you've learned this year to wait on the Lord and to trust him even when you cannot see how his plan is meant to unfold in your life? And even still to walk by faith in things unseen and on his promise stand, knowing that a good and gracious God holds every one of your days. A good and gracious God holds every one of your days. The next aspect of this text I'd point you to is the perfect plan of God. Paul writes, In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman. Just as in the lyric we looked at earlier, here are two truths for the price of one. Jesus is both the son of God and the son of man, or son of woman in this case. And here we come to the most amazing truth of the person of Christ. This baby who lay in the manger was fully God and fully man. Theologians describe this with the term hypostatic union. Hypostatic union, meaning that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, perfectly each of these at the same time, beginning with the incarnation and even to this very moment. It would not be an understatement to say that at the incarnation, Christ brought God to us in a way we would never have imagined or planned ourselves. At the center of this plan of redemption was the baby that the angels declared, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. When it comes to the identity of Jesus being the Son of God, it's vital that we understand what Scripture teaches about him. From the time the letter to the Galatians was written to our day, there's never been a moment where the person and work of Jesus has not been warred against and disbelieved by most. Going back to the fourth century, a man called Arius concluded that Jesus could not have been God. It'd be impossible for a man to be God. He must have been created by the Father. 
And so Arius began spreading false notions around the known world. When the first council of churches gathered in 325 to decide on this theological issue, the council of Nicaea rejected what Arius was saying and reaffirmed the teaching of Scripture about the identity of the Son. In what we now know as the Nicene Creed, they confessed what the Bible teaches. In one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father, through him all things were made. As we think about the details of salvation's plan described here, there are at least three things that stand out to me that I'd like to show you about this baby born in Bethlehem. The first is that he is Christ, the Son of God. Christ, the Son of God. Jesus did not become the Son of God in the incarnation, uh, nor at his baptism, nor on the cross, nor in his resurrection. He has eternally been the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Before Jesus was born and took on human flesh, he already was. So kids, I remind you of this every Christmas season as we celebrate the birth of Christ. I want you to remember that Jesus doesn't really have a birthday. He has always existed. Before Joseph and Mary made their pilgrimage to Bethlehem, before the shepherds were keeping their flock by night, Before the angels sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men, Jesus existed. Before John the Baptist and Isaiah, before David and Moses, Jesus existed. Before oceans were given their boundaries and mountains assigned their height, before time and space were fashioned, Jesus was there, eternally existing. John 1.1 explains, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John goes on to add three more times in the first four chapters of his gospel that Jesus was the Son of God to make sure his readers understand the uniqueness of Jesus as the only begotten one. The only Son of God. Later on in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 5, he records these words of Christ, also confessing his pre-existence. He says in this prayer, And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. So before All of creation was spoken into being. There was the living word of God, the Son ruling and reigning in the glory of God. The second detail of salvation's plan is that he is Christ, the Son of Man. The Son of Man. Paul explains that Jesus was born of a woman. The title Son of Man is only used a couple of times in the New Testament 
Once when Stephen is being stoned, as we'll see in the spring. The other is when Jesus asks the disciples who they say the Son of Man is. But both the title Son of Man and the description born of a woman are speaking to his humanity, to his special humanity. The fact that God became man is something ultimately that is a mystery to us, but one that is still written for us to understand and to ponder and treasure up in our hearts like we find Mary doing in Luke chapter 1. The God who made us became like us. The invisible God became visible. The one who is the theme of heaven's praises took on feral humanity. The son who was exalted humbled himself so low. The maker of bread came to know what it is to be hungry. The one who thought of water and caused it to be experienced the pain of thirst. The one who is the perfection of holiness and eternally sinless knew what it was like to be tempted in every way that you and I are, yet never once sinned. He became truly man. This baby would become helplessly dependent on his mother. And then Christ would grow as a boy and learn things. Luke 2.40 says that he grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. The humanity of Christ was not an imagination. It is, it's no divine trick. Christ was truly human. The maker of Mary, now Mary's son. And finally, let us see that he is Christ, the perfect plan. Christ, the perfect plan. I agree with J.I. Packer, who once wrote, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Don't you find that to be true? The more you think about God incarnate, the more staggering it gets. Perhaps that's been a stumbling block even for you in coming to faith in Christ. You've had a hard time believing that God could become man. Packer goes on to say the real difficulty, the supreme mystery with which the gospel confronts us, and the good news does confront us, lies not in the Good Friday message of atonement, nor in the Easter message of resurrection, but in the Christmas message of incarnation. This is the real stumbling block of Christianity. But once the incarnation is grasped as a reality, these other difficulties dissolve. Don't you see that if God truly has taken on flesh and become one of us, if it really is, if Jesus is God, then it would be nothing for him to perform miracles of multiplying bread, of turning water into wine. It would be nothing for him to heal the, the lame and the sick. It would be nothing for him to raise the dead. It would be possible for him to take the place of all mankind as the substitute for sin and then to be raised to life again. If he's God, the rest makes sense. And let's remember, for thousands of years, people had waited for this moment, for this plan to come to fruition. In Genesis 3.15, there was the whisper of the day when the seed of the woman would, would crush the head of the serpent. 
There was the longing for the Messiah who would bring the rule and reign of Christ, where the kingdom of God would come once and for all. Ultimately, what we must see is that Christ is the perfect plan because Christ came to do what we could not. Nothing shows the heart of God. Draw near to the sinner. Attend the brokenhearted. Reach into the situation of the weak and the needy more than the incarnation. The incarnation is the love of God on display. When it came to saving his people, God chose not to send merely a messenger or just a substitute. He came himself, clothed in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. So being fully God, Christ walked perfectly, a sinless life. Being fully God, Christ died a substitutionary death after fully upholding the law, dying in the death of sinners, and it took God to do that. It took God himself to rescue us from sin. Being God, he was resurrected on the third day to life forever. Being God, he was ascended to the right hand of the Father where he now rules and reigns. And being human, he lived, endured humanity's condition, yet never once sinned. Made like you in every way except for the strain of sin that that pulses through our blood. And he did that so you would have a sympathetic high priest, is what Hebrews chapter 4 says. Who understands your frailty and your condition. One hymn writer put it like this. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger didst surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Earlier we looked at the first public words of Jesus recorded in Mark's gospel where he said the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. However, that's not the whole phrase that Mark records. Jesus goes on to say this, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. We never outgrow our need to repent and believe in the gospel. The good news of the gospel is this. In the fullness of time, God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his own son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. You might ask, why? Why would God wait so long to send his son to bring this ultimate salvation? Why would God wait so long for the return of Christ where all things will be made new and all things made right? One place we find this partially answered is in 2 Peter 3.9, which also reveals something of the heart of God toward sinners. 
Peter writes, the Lord is not slow to fulfill the promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I wonder if this Christmas season you find yourself having never received forgiveness of your sin. And here in the fullness of time in your life could be the very day of your salvation. Jesus is clear what to do in Mark chapter 1, the passage we just read. Repent of your sin and believe in Christ, the one who is fully God and fully man, the only one who can save you from your sinful condition. And for each of us who are already in Christ, to look with fresh eyes, to look with an open heart once again at the scene of the manger, at the reality of the incarnation, and to wonder and marvel that such provision has been made for us, that such salvation has been given us through the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word that instructs us, that confronts us, that strengthens, transforms us. I pray that the word of Christ would do its good work in us. For the glory of Christ, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.